Turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Our scripture reading this morning is going to be Colossians chapter 1, uh, verses 15 through 20. I'm actually going to be reading beginning at verse 13 so that we can hear it uh, in context, but our focus will be on verses 15 through 20 of Colossians chapter 1. If you're uh, using one of the Pew Bibles, you will find these verses on page 983. Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 13. This is the reading of God's Word. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him... All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That is the reading of God's word. Let us pray and ask for his blessing upon the preaching of his word here this morning. Father in heaven, have mercy on us. According to your great love with which you have loved us in Christ, grant us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to receive your truth, that our minds might be renewed and our lives transformed to the praise of your glory. This we pray in Jesus' name and for his name's sake. Amen. This Advent season, as we have been preparing our hearts to celebrate Jesus' birth, we have been meditating upon the accomplishment of His death. Even as that song that the band just sang that we'll be singing after the sermon begins with His birth but doesn't end there, it it reminds us that His birth is the beginning of a story. And we have been focusing on the purpose of that story. Jesus himself said, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Now in Jesus' day, a ransom was the price paid to redeem something, to to redeem someone out of debt or out of slavery. And so Jesus says that he gave his life as the price of our redemption. He was born to die, that all who believe in him might not perish, but have eternal life. And this Advent season, we have been meditating upon his work of redemption, especially as it is set before us here in the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Colossians. And the first thing that we saw here in this chapter was the goal of our redemption. We saw that we were redeemed in Christ 
to walk in the footsteps of faith and love, that we were redeemed to bear fruit in every good work in the knowledge of God. We were not redeemed so that we could continue living in sin with impunity, but rather, as Paul says in his letter to Titus, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And so we saw first the the goal of our redemption, the goal of new life in Christ. Second, we we saw the nature or the substance of our redemption. We saw that in Christ we have been qualified for an inheritance in God's kingdom. That in Christ we have been delivered from the domain of darkness and, and brought into the kingdom of the beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Because of Christ's work, we are no longer alienated from God. Because of His work, we we are no longer far off, but have been brought near. We have been reconciled to the Father. And having peace with God, we now have an inheritance in His coming kingdom. This is the redemption that is ours in Christ. This morning, we will be looking at the one who has accomplished all this for us. We have redemption in Christ, and this morning our focus will be on Him. Who is this one who has done all this for us? Who is this one who has reconciled us to the Father? Who is this one who has redeemed us from darkness? And what we will see is this. We will see that the one in whom we have redemption, the the one who has given his life as the ransom for ours, is none other than the Lord God Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. Once again, look at these verses beginning at verse 15. You'll notice the first thing that Paul tells us is that Jesus, the the beloved Son, the one in whom we have redemption, that He is the image of the invisible God. And the first thing I want you to notice is that statement about the invisibility of God. In modern stories, when we we speak about invisibility, it's it's an invisibility that is achieved by controlling light. A person or an object becomes invisible by not reflecting light back to the eye of the beholder. Thus, to be invisible is to be unseen or or undetected. That's not what Paul means. Rather, Paul is reminding us that God, by his very nature, is invisible. He's invisible not because he doesn't reflect light, but because he doesn't have a body like men. It is not that God hides his body or or keeps it from being seen, but rather it is that God doesn't have a body to be seen. He doesn't have a body that can be perceived by our eyes or by any of our other senses. He is not merely unseen, he is unseeable. And this is significant. It's significant Because it places mankind, it places us in a position of absolute dependence. We simply do not possess the ability to to see or to know God as He is in Himself. 
We can't go out and find him. We can't go out and measure him. We can't go out and and discover him for ourselves. We can only know him as he shows himself, as he reveals himself to us. We are utterly dependent upon his initiative. Any knowledge that we have of him must come from him. It must be his self. Revelation. Without revelation, we can have no knowledge of God whatsoever. But of course, that's Paul's point. Paul's point is that God has given us the revelation we need to know Him. God has made Himself known. And in ancient times, we're told in the book of Hebrews, God spoke through various prophets and in various ways, but now He has spoken through His Son. He has made himself definitively known through the word become flesh. And that's exactly Paul's point here. Elsewhere, Paul tells us that that God has made himself known in the things that he has made, that that his creation shows us something of his nature, something of of his power. But here, he says more than this. Here he says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now we are image Bearers. God created mankind in his image and, and after his likeness. Therefore, all men and women are image bearers of God. But Jesus is more than a mere image bearer. Jesus is the image. He is the image of God. He is God, the invisible God, made visible. He is the invisible God manifest in human Flesh. The author of Hebrews says the same thing, writing that he is the radiance of his glory and the exact imprint of his nature. Here is God himself come in human flesh. Jesus is the invisible God made visible. And we could just stop right there and, and, and just wrestle with this truth and we would never even begin to, to comprehend it. We, we, we can't begin to understand the, the full ramifications of what it means that, that the, the unknowable God, the invisible God has made himself known. That he has revealed himself to us, not just through the things he has made, not even just through the words of prophets, but he has made himself known through His Son. He has made Himself known by, by sending him, him Son, who is the exact imprint of His nature, who is fully God in every way. He has sent Him in human flesh to dwell among us. He is truly Emmanuel, God with us. But Paul doesn't stop there. He, he begins there. He begins with the idea that that the one in whom we have redemption is God come in the flesh. But but notice what he says next. He says that he is the firstborn of all creation. That's a statement that is easy to misunderstand, and it has actually been misunderstood by many throughout church history. Many have have taken this phrase to mean that, that Jesus is the first of the created beings. That he is the first being created by the invisible God. There are still some, like the Jehovah's Witness, who who teach this today. But that is not at all what Paul means. We know this from verse 16. Look what Paul writes. 
He says that, yes, he is the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. And that little word for at the beginning is, is important. It tells us that, that Paul is explaining his previous statement. He is, he is explaining to us that Jesus is the firstborn of creation because he is the creator of all things. He is the firstborn, not because he was the first to be created, but because he was the creator. His status as firstborn is derived from his identity as the maker of heaven and earth. And therefore, firstborn of all creation cannot mean that he was the first being created. Rather, the phrase must mean that he is the rightful owner that he is the rightful Lord, that, that all creation belongs to him and is under his domain. And this is actually one of the ways that this language of firstborn was used in, in Paul's day. The word was often used because firstborn, the firstborn was the heir. The firstborn was the one to whom the estate Belonged. He was the, the rightful Lord of the manor. And thus the title came to be associated not only with the literal firstborn, but with the one who occupied the position of Lord or, or master of the house. This is why Isaac is referred to as Abraham's firstborn. Not the literal firstborn, but the owner of the promise. The one to whom the household belonged. And by referring to Jesus as the firstborn of all creation, Paul is telling us that all creation is rightfully his. That all of creation is his inheritance. In fact, this is the exact phrase that the author of Hebrews goes on to use. He tells us that the one who is the radiance of his glory, the exact imprint of his nature, is the heir of all things. This is who Jesus is. He is the firstborn of creation, the rightful Lord of the cosmos. Now, if this is correct, it's confirmed by the end of verse 16. Notice again what Paul writes. He says, all things were created by him and for him. Now, Paul is here repeating himself. He's, he's restating what he's already said for, for emphasis. This is the way that, that the Jews spoke. This was their rhetorical style to, to pile up statements that explained and, and uh, filled out uh, one another. And here, Paul restates what he says by saying that all things were created by him and for him. All things were created by him. He is the creator he is the one who, who called all things into existence. By the word of his power, things that did not exist came into being. He, he created out of nothing. But not only is he the creator of all things, we're also told that all things were created for him. He is the rightful Lord. He is the heir. All things rightfully belong to him. And so our Redeemer is the one by whom and for whom all things were made. He is the creator and sovereign Lord of the cosmos. And notice what Paul says. This includes all things. All things in heaven and on earth. All things visible and invisible. 
or the thrones or, or dominions or rulers or authorities. Again, Paul is piling up words that, that his readers would have understood applied to the, to the spiritual forces that inhabit the cosmos. We modern people sometimes doubt that such forces exist, but that is our foolishness. We live in a world where there are both the, the, the seen material universe and the unseen spiritual world, and they are both equally real. That's not ancient gullibility, that is biblical wisdom. We live in a world where there is a spiritual reality. But notice what Paul says. All of those spiritual powers were created by the one creator God. We have to think about what that means. If our Redeemer is Lord of all creation, including every spiritual power, if if. If that is true, then it follows that there is nothing in creation, spiritual or material, seen or unseen, in heaven or on earth. There is nothing in creation that can thwart His purposes. There is no power that can stand against His will. There is is no force that can resist Him. You see, the biblical worldview is not dualistic. There are not two equal powers in the cosmos at at war with one another, one good and the other evil. There is not a force with a dark side and and a light side. There is one creator, God. And in Him there is no darkness at all. And He has no rivals. Psalm 2 tells us that he, He holds His enemies in derision. He laughs at those who who protest against him. Yes, they shake their fist in his face and say, we will not be ruled by you. But he merely laughs and declares that his anointed one will indeed sit upon the throne forever. Even as we have sung this morning, he declares that of the increase of his government and his peace, there will be no end. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. For he does whatever he pleases. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. For he is the creator God. And not only this, not only is he he the creator, but he is the sustainer. In him all things continue to hold together. It's not that his, his creative power was exhausted in the beginning, but even now by the same word of power, he continues to sustain all things. And so we see that Jesus, the the one in whom we have redemption, the one in whom we have the forgiveness of sins, that this Jesus is the incarnate creator and sustainer of the cosmos. He is the maker of heaven and earth. This is our Redeemer. This is what we mean when we open our worship service saying, people of God, our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He is for us. And notice what Paul says. It is He, the the Creator, who is the head of the body, the church. Think about that phrase. What what does that phrase mean? What What does it mean to say that He is the head of the body, the church? 
It seems that that little title head can be used in at least two ways. It, it can suggest authority or it can suggest source. For example, when we refer to the head of state, we, we are implying authority. But when we refer to the head of the Nile, we are referring to source. And so, which does Paul have in mind here? Is he, is he speaking of authority or is he, is he speaking of, of source? Both are, are true, of course, but I'm inclined to think that here Paul has source primarily in mind. We, we see this in what follows. Notice what Paul says. First, he tells us that Jesus is the beginning. With respect to creation, we were told that he was before all things, before the creation of the world, he was. It's the same thing that we read in, in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. But here, with respect to the church, we are told that he is the beginning. Now obviously, if he was before creation, he was before the church. But Paul's point is that the church has its beginning in him. In him, the church has its origin. He is the beginning of the church. And that's the, the same thing that's expressed by the next phrase, the firstborn from the dead. Again, most commentators see this as a, as a reference to the resurrection. But we have to understand that he's using firstborn slightly differently here. In fact, the, the little change in prepositions from of to, to from tells us that, that there's going to be a slight change in meaning for the word firstborn. Previously, Paul described Jesus as the firstborn of creation, meaning the, the rightful Lord and heir of creation. But here, he describes Jesus slightly differently. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, meaning that he was the first to rise from the dead. He was the first to be resurrected. And so Paul is saying that by his resurrection, Jesus became the beginning of the church. His resurrection was the, the source of the church because his resurrection is what secured new life for all who believe in him. Think of what Paul says in, in Romans chapter 4. He tells us that he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised again for our justification. And so through his resurrection... We have been reconciled to God. Through his resurrection, we now have peace. Through his resurrection, we have moved from death to life. We have been raised to walk in newness of life in God. By his resurrection, the church has been called into being. And he did this according to Paul. Why? He did this so that in everything he might be preeminent. To be preeminent is to be first. It is, it is to be Lord over all. It is to be the Lord of lords and the, the King of, of kings. So Paul is saying that Jesus rose from the dead in order to become the preeminent Lord of creation. But that requires some explanation. Because remember... Paul's already told us that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. He's already told us that all things were created by him and, and, and for him. In fact, he, he says this again in this very context when he, when he says that in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus is fully God. All that is God dwells in Christ. He is fully 
God. But if that is true, why is it necessary for Jesus to die and rise again in order to become preeminent? He is preeminent. The answer, of course, is found in the fact of man's fall in Adam. Our first parents rebelled against their maker. They, they rebelled against God by eating the fruit of the tree of which they had been commanded not to eat. And through their rebellion, sin and death entered the world. Through their rebellion, God's curse fell upon creation and it was bound in futility. Man, of course, came under a sentence of death, and because man was created to be the ruler of creation, his curse infected every square inch of the cosmos. Nothing was left undefiled. Nothing was left untouched by the futility of sin. And so therefore, no part of creation after man's fall continued to reflect the lordship of Christ without distortion. Especially not mankind. No one descending from Adam continued to honor God as God or to give him proper thanks. But on the contrary, we are told that all were alienated from God. All became hostile towards him, veritable enemies of God, each claiming to be his own Lord and captain of his own soul. Each shaking his fist in God's face, saying, I will not be ruled by you. And so while Jesus was and is the rightful Lord of creation, he was not acknowledged as such by mankind, and therefore it was necessary for him to, to become again preeminent in all things. This is the truth that we express when we sing that great hymn, Crown Him with Many Crowns. I, I once had a, a ruling elder in my church object to us singing that song. He said, why do we need to crown him? He's already the king. We don't make him king. And I understand that objection, but at the same time, it misses the point. Yes, he is truly king, but he is not acknowledged by such. And so we come before him to confess Him as Lord. We come before Him, to, to bow before Him as King. We come not to, to make Him King, but to acknowledge who He is. That in all things He might have preeminence. Exactly what, what Paul is getting at here. He is the firstborn from the dead, so that He might have preeminence in all things. We see this also in Verse 20, look again at what Paul says. Through him, God reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. In other words, Jesus died and rose again in order to bring all things back into right relationship with him, in order to, to bring mankind back into a, a posture of of worship and adoration and, and thanksgiving to, to make peace between those who were formerly enemies. Again, it's exactly what Paul says at, at the end of Romans 4 and the beginning of, of Romans 5. He was delivered up for our transgressions and raised again for our justification. And thus, since we have been justified by faith, we now have peace with God. This is the accomplishment of our Redeemer. 
He died and rose again. And through his death and resurrection, we have been reconciled. In Christ, the image of the invisible God, the maker of heaven and earth, has restored us to right relationship with himself. Making his son again the preeminent Lord of the cosmos, seating him upon the throne that will have no end. And so we see that the baby born in Bethlehem, the baby whose, whose birth we celebrate at Christmas time, the one in whom we have redemption, the one in whom we have the forgiveness of sins, he is none other than the Lord God Almighty, made visible in human flesh. This is Paul's point. This is the point that, that Paul wants us to see the creator and sustainer of the universe, the preeminent Lord of the cosmos, is our Redeemer. And the implications are astounding. First, this means that redemption is God's initiative. The story of redemption is not the, the story of, of someone who found themselves on hard times, making every effort to redeem themselves and reclaim their rightful spot in society. But rather, the story of redemption is first and foremost God's story. It is the story of God's pursuit of His rebellious people. Think again of the familiar language of John 3, 16. What do we read? God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Familiar words, but I'm convinced we often misread them. We often think that Jesus came so that God would love the world. But it's not what John said. God did not... Jesus did not come to, to cajole his father into giving the world another chance. He didn't come to, to persuade the father to, to love us. But rather, because the father loved us, even while we were yet his enemies, he sent his son to redeem us. God proves his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We know this, but we need to believe it. We, we need to let it dwell in our hearts richly. We, we need to let it renew our minds and, and transform our lives. Our God is not a reluctant Savior. He is not waiting to see if we will prove ourselves worthy of redemption. But on the contrary, even while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, He loved us. Even while we were hostile in mind towards Him, He pursued us. Even when we were too weak to do for Him anything that, that honored His name as glorious, He pursued us. At the cost of His own Son's precious blood, He reconciled us to Himself the one under whose wrath we languished, even in the midst of that wrath, loved us and gave His Son to rescue us from Himself, 
gave his son to be the beginning of the church. And thus none who call on him will ever be turned away. When you cry out to him for salvation, you don't have to wonder whether you're good enough. You don't have to wonder whether you are worthy. All who believe on him will be saved because God so loved the world, even while we were yet his enemies. And he gave his son that all who believe in him, without exception, might not perish, but have eternal life. This is the first implication of our help being in the name of the Lord. If salvation is his initiative, then we do not have to cajole an unwilling God to save us. We simply must receive the salvation that he offers us in his Son. But there's a second implication here. Not only is redemption God's initiative, redemption is also God's work. The Almighty God, the God who does whatever He pleases, the God who works all things according to the counsel of His will, the Creator God who called into existence things that previously did not exist by the mere word of His power, the Lord who made heaven and earth visible and invisible. This is the one who offers you salvation. And this means that the offer is trustworthy. We are not always able to keep our promises. Even when we have the best of intentions, there are powers in this world that can thwart our purposes. There are powers that can keep us from doing what we want to do. We cannot always protect our children. We cannot always protect our, our loved ones. We are simply not in control. But He is. And there is no power in all of the universe that can frustrate God's purposes. In Christ, He created all things. In Christ, He, he created even the, the thrones and the dominions and the rulers and the authorities. All things were created through Him and, and for Him. And therefore, if He is for us, Paul asks, who can be against us? And of course, the whole point is that He is for us. The Father did not spare His own Son. The Son did not consider safety in heaven a thing to be grasped. But rather, He humbled Himself, being born as a baby in a manger, that He might live under the law, obedient to the very end, obedient even to the point of death. That by his death, all who believe in him might live. The invisible God has been made visible in Christ. And through him, he has reconciled all things to himself, making peace by the blood of the cross. And because he is our peace, that is why his birth was announced as good news of great joy. For all people. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, indeed, this is the good news. That the visible, that the invisible God has been made visible in Christ, who came not to be served, but to serve, 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. Father God, I pray that you would open our, our ears and our minds and our hearts to know and to understand and to receive this gospel. May we put down deep roots into it and may we bring forth its fruit in our lives to the praise of your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.